We now move on to this text. In chapter 9, what we see here is that Paul is about to give an example of the truth that he taught in chapter 8. If you will remember with me, in chapter 8, Paul is addressing the issue of Christian liberty. Christian liberty is that what Christians have the freedom to do and not be sinful. Meaning, has God forbidden it? Then, of course, there is no liberty there. But if God has not forbidden it, and the scriptures are not clear, then we are at liberty to do so with a clear conscience. And this was the issue in the Corinthian church. They were asking Paul this question because there were some in the church that had trouble because they had come out of former, their former idolatrous lives of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And the church was divided over this issue. And Paul tells them in the last chapter that you may have the right to eat this meat, but just because you have the liberty to do so, because it's just meat, perhaps you shouldn't exercise all your freedoms and all your rights if it's going to damage or hurt somebody else. For example, in that context, there were people who had struggled with idolatry, and then to see a believer eat that same meat that they used to sacrifice to those gods really triggered them and even derailed some. And Paul says, for the name of love, you should exercise love with knowledge towards your weaker brother and sister, because it's just not knowledge that love that counts, but also love. If you're using your freedom to hurt others, that's wrong. And now in chapter 9, Paul will give an example of how this is true in his own life. It begins by asking a series of rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions is a question that everyone knows the answer to. It's just assumed. But Paul's making a point by asking these questions. He says in verse 1, Am I not free? Yeah, you guys are saying that you're free to eat this meat. You're free. What about me? Am I free? Do I have Christian liberty as well? Yes, Paul, you have Christian liberty. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen our Lord? Paul says, I'm more than just free. Because I'm an apostle, I possess authority from the Lord Jesus. An apostle literally means a sent one. But in a sense, all Christians are sent. But an apostle was one who has been ordained by the Lord Jesus with a specific first century ministry to speak authoritative truth to his church. The apostles started churches and wrote scripture. It was not just a person who was commissioned by Christ, but it was also one who saw with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus. And we know that Paul had this encounter with the Lord. In Acts chapter 9, he met Jesus on the Damascus road on his way to persecute Christians. He met the one against whom he was persecuting, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Which, let's point out right now, that today there is no such thing as apostles living today. Apostles were given by Christ in the time of the first century for specific purposes. There's people who say they're apostles today, but they are not. There are no more apostles outside the original apostles of the first century church. Paul continues, with more questions. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? You are very proof of God's call on my life. 
For I preached the gospel in Corinth. You were saved. You guys were baptized. You were discipled. And now I'm writing you this big hefty letter. Your lives have changed. You got lots of room for improvement, as we've seen, right? But you are evidence that something real has happened in Corinth. And why did that happen? Because the Lord sent me to you. And therefore, you are my seal of my apostleship. He says in verse 2, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal, the, the authenticity, the authentic evidence that my apostleship in the Lord is accurate. Now, there were some who denied Paul's apostleship, and he deals with that in 2 Corinthians. That's not really the issue here, as we will see. Basically, Paul is saying, if anyone should know my credentials as an apostle, and that I speak with authority, and that I am free in Jesus, it ought to be you. It ought to be you. Verse 3, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Some confuse this as Paul is trying to defend his apostleship here, and I can see why that's confusing. But it's in the context of this verse that I believe that it's not. The context tells us that he's about to prove the point of chapter 8. The point of chapter 8 is that Christians have liberty, and therefore you shouldn't exercise your liberty to hurt other people. It's almost as if Paul is saying, uh, they're asking Paul, okay, Paul, prove it. You're telling us not to eat this meat, even though we have the right to. Is this even true in your life? Because Paul makes his bold claim in verse 13 of chapter 8. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest my brother stumble. Okay, Paul, prove it. Prove it. And this is why Paul says, this is my defense to those who would examine. You want to examine me and how I exercise Christian liberty? You just think I'm just putting this heavy load of responsibility on you? No, listen here. Here's some more questions. Look at verse 4. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Of course, that was the issue. What can you eat? What can you drink? Now, Paul is not saying about the issues of alcohol or what to drink. No, it's another question basically saying, do we have the right to the basic necessities of life? Just because I'm an apostle, does that mean that I can't eat and drink? And you're just like, what? Where are you going with this? Well, keep, hold on. Yes, Paul, of course you can eat and drink. I mean, everyone's entitled to that right. Look at verse 5. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Do we have the freedom to get married? And we know Paul is a single man. Did he have the freedom to get married? Of course he did, but he didn't. We saw in chapter 7, it's for him to proclaim the gospel more freely. Paul went to places as a single man that he could not have as a married man. As one who had the responsibility of providing and caring and protecting for his wife. He could not bring a wife along on his missionary journeys. They beat this guy up every city he went to. But even though he had the right to get married, even though he has the freedom to get married, for the sake of the people here in the gospel around the world, he sacrificed that right. 
Then he says, by the way, um, the other apostles are married. Uh, and even the brothers of the Lord, Jesus, James, yeah, he's married. And Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter. Peter? Yeah, Peter is married. Which totally destroys the Catholic Church teaching of celibacy for the priesthood. As they consider that the Pope, or Peter, was the first Pope. But not only here, but we see in the Gospels that Peter was a married man. Remember, Jesus healed his mother-in-law from a fever. Paul is saying, do we have a right to be married and find joy like the other apostles? Yes, Paul, you have that right. Again, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of those who would hear, this is something he's not done. He says in verse 6, Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And this is the main point that Paul is trying to get to. See, all the other apostles, they were supported by the people that they ministered to, but not Paul. Everyone else can stop working for a living, but Paul and Barnabas, they have not just a side gig, they have, it's their main gig. Paul's income came from his full-time job, which was a tent maker. A tent maker is one who worked with leather and obviously made tents, and he sold them. Paul was not supported by the Corinthians, and he's about to make this point. The other apostles are supported, but not Paul. In fact, Paul did not receive financial support from other churches as well, which we're going to see. This is the point he's trying to make. Does everyone else have a right to stop making tents or finding their gig for a living just to feed themselves? Or is it just me and Barnabas that have to do that? No, we have a right to be compensated for serving the Lord by the people who, who are blessed by our ministry. And now to make that point, he uses these verses. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Nobody in the military pays their way in. They're supported by their country. It's their job, and they're taken care of because it's their service. A soldier serves, and he's provided for by the same people he protects or fights for. That's what Paul's point is. Here's another one. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? The vine dresser plants the vineyard, prunes the vineyard, takes care of the vineyard, Brings it to health. Makes sure it has water and sunlight. Because he is the vine dresser, he can eat from the fruit, the grapes that come from the vine. Why? Because he has labored over it. He says, what vine dresser plants a vineyard without eating it? He's entitled to it. That's the fruit of his hands. The fruit of his labor. The vine produces the fruit for the vine dresser. A country provides for its soldiers. And he goes on. He says, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The shepherd watches over the sheep, leading the sheep, protecting, cleaning, fending off wolves. What shepherd takes care of the sheep and doesn't benefit from the sheep? 
These are three practical reasons, and he's making the same point. The soldier, the vine dresser, and the shepherd all labor and are provided by what they're laboring in. I can't just say, Paul, where are you going with this? He says in verse 8, and he doesn't just allude here to practical human wisdom, because he says that in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority, or does not the law say the same? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, for, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Here Paul quotes from the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 25.4. And this chapter, Deuteronomy 25, is a chapter in the Mosaic law on fair and just treatment of people and includes animals. It says here, do not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. What does that mean? I'm a city boy, so I, wouldn't, I did not grow up with oxen treading out grain. How about you? All right. Matter of fact, Lori made fun of me because it wasn't until we were married that I was ever in a barn. I'm like, why would anyone want to be in a barn? Anyway, <laughs> I'm from New Jersey. We don't have barns. Okay. Um, treading out the grain meant this. They would gather the grain from the field and put it in what was known as the threshing floor. And they would let the ox, uh, the oxen repeatedly walk on the grain. And by doing so, the chaff of the grain, that's the non-edible, flaky, dry stuff that comes off, would come off from the grain, leaving the edible part on the floor, which would be barley or wheat. So, Deuteronomy 25, 4 says, do not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Meaning, here's the ox doing the work. It's separating the chaff, the unedible parts, and leaving the edible parts behind. But you're putting a muzzle on him so he can't eat what he just worked in doing. Again, another example of the one who works should be provided for from his labor. So now he says, soldiers, vine dressers, shepherds, and now oxen. Four examples. Three from practical wisdom, one from the law. And Paul uses this verse about an ox, um, not muzzling an ox who treads out the grain. Three, three different places in the New Testament. One of the places he uses it is in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And Paul's making an argument to Timothy as to why the elders that he is training ought to be supported by that local church. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well, elders, again, another name for pastors, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Paul loved this verse. I mean, he used it again and again. And why? The laborer deserves his wages. Again, Paul, why are you bringing all this up? 
Yes, we know a soldier needs to be provided for by his country. We know a vine dresser needs to be provided by his vine. A shepherd needs to be, should benefit from his flock. An ox should eat some of the grain that he's treading. And yes, we need to take care of our elders who are teaching and preaching the word of God. On that same principle, where are you going with this? Look at verse 11. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Paul says, we have shared the gospel with you. We planted the church. You know Jesus because of our ministry and influence. We have discipled you. We have corrected you for your sin. You have benefited from us spiritually. He even says here, you support others who come to preach to you and teach to you. If you support them, don't you think that I have the same right to also be supported by you? who has labored much for you here, and if you support them, don't you think I have an equal footing as well since I'm the one who started the church in Corinth? If anyone can claim that they can be supported by you, it's us. Now, it seems like Paul is laying a massive guilt trip on here, right? Is Paul trying to get paid? No. In fact, he doesn't want to be paid, which we're about to see. He continues, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put up an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And there you have it. Paul says, listen, you want to know how I exercise liberty? How I don't use my rights to abuse people, even though I rightfully deserve it or am entitled to it? Here's one. How much money have you sent to me to support me in my ministry, Corinthians? None. Because I've never asked for it, nor do I want it. I have the right to get it from you, but guess what? I serve the Lord for free among you. Even though I have the right to do it, I don't. Because if I did... It could create an obstacle, a stumbling block in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul, how do you practice what you preach? You want us to give us this meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, I'll tell you how I do it. Just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean you ought to. For the sake of other people. Paul had labored, but he didn't exercise that right. Instead, what did he do? He provided for his own needs by being a tent maker. And the reason is, he loved people. He loved people. And he just made an argument why it would have been totally right and holy to receive support. Improper, according to the law of God and human wisdom. But this is his defense. This is how he's backing up, how he doesn't use Christian liberty for his own gain. And that's the whole point, brothers and sisters. This is the whole point of chapter 8 and chapter 9. 
Are we putting other people first? Are we thinking of other people before we think of ourselves? And again, this could be applied in many different aspects of Christian liberty in our lives. Nobody here is eating meat sacrificed to idols. Actually, I said that a couple weeks ago. And Donna, who Jeff and Donna are away in Texas this weekend. Donna grew up in Japan. She's from Japan. And she says, actually, when I became a Christian, that, be, that was a real thing. Because there was I, uh, temples and idols, and they sacrificed meat to them. I said, okay, well, I guess somebody did. Um, there's always one in the crowd. So, how, how do you practice what you preach, Paul? Here you go. I'm telling you that I refuse financial support to serve you for the love of people in Corinth. Is, is Paul just paying lip service here? Or does he really mean it? And what obstacles to the gospel could exist? Because that's what he said, that was his reasoning for it. If receiving support created an obstacle, he, he didn't want anything to do with it. Well, let me tell you from the get-go what I think what Paul means here. And I think it could be multifaceted depending on the context of the city that he was in. But the thing that I think I was struck most from this passage of reading other places where Paul wrote about the same thing, the biggest obstacle to the gospel is the preacher himself. And Paul knows himself well. Paul knows and has even said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. If me being compensated leads to a stumbling block to someone else, I don't want a penny of it. The preacher himself could be the biggest obstacle in the way of the gospel. This is why Paul gives very specific qualifications for those who desire to be elders and deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, just reading some of the qualifications of an elder, of a pastor, this is what he says to Timothy. Therefore, an overseer, there's another name for elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a what? Not a lover of money. Any pastor or elder serving God for the love of money, let's just say this, it would be better if he had never been born. For he will have to stand before an almighty God and have to confess that he used God for a career or God to stack his bank account. And Paul knows that the heart of the minister is prone to all kinds of sin and wickedness. This is why we need men of integrity and character. Matter of fact, if you look at the qualifications of elders and deacons, the first thing that you might think of, well, there's some characteristics of skill that are needed in there. 
There's only one skill that Paul talks about, able to teach. The rest of them all are all matters of character and integrity in the life of an elder. Why? Because when an elder falls, when a deacon falls, it has a domino effect of causing obstacles in the way of the gospel. We've all heard horror stories of elders who have fallen, pastors who have been rigged in scandals. This is why Paul tells young Timothy to pay attention not only to the doctrine, but also to yourself. And by this, you would save yourself and your hearers. Paul has no problem, and he's even proved the point, that those who serve the Lord ought to benefit and have a living and support it from it. However, if anyone is going to use that to their advantage, to make themselves rich, they have just disqualified themselves. I think this is one of the things that Paul was trying to guard against, not necessarily in his own life, but also to be an example to others. And also in his passionate work in all these different cities, he wanted to make sure that nobody could accuse him of doing it for the money. He went there of his own will and accord, made tents, and served God. Let's look at some other places so we can see that this is not just lip service here that Paul says to the Corinthians. In Acts chapter 20, verse 34, Paul has this lengthy address to the elders at Ephesus, to the Ephesian elders. Listen to what Paul says to them before he goes away. He's giving them some final charge and final instructions. And this is what Paul says. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He wasn't saying to the TV screen, just send me 1995 and I'll send you. No. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessity and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. The heart of the minister is an obstacle in the way of the gospel and must be guarded and protected at all cost. For if the evil one trips up an elder, there's ramifications that would be felt in the lives of people for a long time. And trust me, this is something that keeps me very humble and sober-minded. Paul tells the Thessalonians that the reason he served them was out of a duty of love. And this is why, this is the point that Paul is making. Why doesn't he exercise his right to be compensated? Because knowledge without love is not knowledge. Nor is love without knowledge real love. It comes down to the heart of the matter. A love of Christ and a love of people must supersede a desire to get paid. Even though a laborer is worthy of his wages, like he just said. But where is the heart 
of the minister. This is what Paul says to the Thessalonians. Again, we see that in Ephesus. We see it in Corinth. Here's, here's what Paul says to the Thessalonians. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Here it is again. We came to you. We served you. We could have made a demand as an apostle of the Lord Jesus that you ought to support our ministry, but we did not. Look at verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Does it get much more intimate than that? What is Paul's desire there? We were gentle, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also ourselves, because you had been so very near and dear to us. An elder who does not love the people whom he has been called to, who loves the ministry more than people, ought not to be an elder. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Nobody can accuse Paul of doing it for the money. He wasn't going to be an obstacle, even though he had the right but an obstacle to the gospel may not just reside with the preacher, but it may also reside with certain issues in that city or that church. For example, the Thessalonians also struggled with something, laziness. The Thessalonian church was an idle church, and Paul had to come in and call them to repentance about their laziness and their idleness. So think about this for a minute. For Paul to come in to the to the Thessalonians, sharing the gospel, and just receive money without any kind of manual labor would not have really have stood any ground or held any water of calling them to repentance, but he would have been like them, lazy in their sin. This is why Paul says to them in 2 Thessalonians 3, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. You guys were idle, but we weren't idle. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Paul didn't, Paul didn't walk into the marketplace and said, Hey, I'm the Apostle Paul. I need a loaf of bread. I deserve a loaf of bread. Throw in some chocolate chip cookies and we're good. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because, listen, it was not because we do not have the right, here it is again, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. One of the reasons in, Thess in, in Thessalonica that he didn't take compensation was why? Because he wanted to be an example to these idle people that they ought not to be idle, but they ought to be hardworking. For even when we were with you, verse 10, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. 
Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Go to work and shut up. Stop being lazy. When we went to Thessalonica, we had every right just to serve Jesus and preach the gospel. We had every right to be paid. But guess what? That would have been a bad example to you. Bad example to you. So it could be an obstacle in the life of the preacher. And during the days of the Corinthian church, there were false teachers, just like there was today. Matter of fact, Paul deals with that in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, there's these so-called, Paul calls them, super apostles. Who thought they were better than Paul. Who again, were only out there to fleece the sheep. And Paul has to defend his apostleship to them. And this not being paid, you think, well, boy, they love Paul for that. Actually, some people hated him for that. They we want to pay you. You're not even a real apostle if we can't pay you. That, that caused a lot of consternation there. In verse 13, Paul continues with another example. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Paul says, hey, remember Israel and the temple in the Old Testament. Who ate at the temple? The Levites did. God didn't give the Levites a share of the land. In fact, the rest of the tribes of Israel provided for the Levites. Why? Because they were the ones who were serving in the temple, making the sacrifices, taking up, uh, making up the offerings to God, offering up prayers for the people. This principle goes all the way back to the beginning. In verse 14, Paul now applies it to today. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. There is nothing wrong with that, Paul says. I'm just letting you know. Even though I have the right, doesn't mean I have to use it. He didn't want to be associated, I believe, with other false teachers of the day that were invading Corinth, who were there for the love of money, who would go about and doing what they could to rob people in the name of religion, just like we have today with many so-called health and wealth prosperity gospel preachers who fleece millions of people while, who are living in poverty while they're flying on private jets and living in luxury. That was a problem in Paul's day, and it's a problem today as well. But he never wanted anybody to think he was in it for the money, ever. He'd rather be poor and serve Christ. For the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 15. Again he says this. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. He makes it clear. Uh, just in case you think I'm writing this because you know I need some help. Don't think about it. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. He says, I'm not doing this for the money. This is my calling. If God has called me to do it and I say, I'm not doing it because I'm not being paid, then woe is me. Woe is me that God has called me to do something, but I only do it if I get paid. Woe is me, Paul says. 
for I do this of my own will. I have a reward, but if not my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make my full use of my right in the gospel. There you go. You, you wanted evidence? You wanted my defense? This is why I could tell you, hey, brothers, you can eat that juicy, melt-in-your-mouth, well-marinated steak that was offered up to that idol. You can eat it. But you don't have to for the sake of your brother. For the sake of your brother who may stumble and fall. And by exercising your freedom, you then become an obstacle to your brother. And him living a life that God has called him to live away from idolatry. Just as I have every right to be paid, but I refuse, make tents so that nobody can accuse me of anything like the other false teachers. And even then, they still gave it to Paul. It's interesting too, Paul even tells them in 2 Corinthians, you'll see that in chapter 12, he tells them in 2 Corinthians that there was a time where, where he was sick and, and desperate and the churches in Macedonia, the Philippians, actually sent an offering to him and he did take it. He saw that as a provision from God and he even told the Corinthians, they did that when I was destitute serving you. So if I can do that, you can give up that stake. For the name of your brother. Hmm. As wonderful as this passage is. And showing us so many different aspects of our lives. And the ministry. And our motives. We love Paul. But yet. We do not glorify Paul. Paul is a sinner saved by grace. Just like us. But Paul is only imitating the one he knows, the Lord Jesus. This is how our Lord Jesus lived. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What he is about to show them, what he is showing them here, is the same sacrificial love of people to lay down our rights for the benefit of others. This morning, I was really praying as I did my sermon review, as I always did, I don't do on Sunday mornings, to show me, God, in your word, another glorious example of how the Lord Jesus did this. And I came across, and I said, of course, of course. Why didn't I think of this? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, we'll close with this as we transition to the Lord's Supper. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Let, let's... Let's read this verse together. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Here is King Jesus in glories in heaven, 
who left the riches. And by the way, when it says riches, it's not talking about, you know, finances. That God has come so we could be financially rich. The prosperity gospel people will take this verse and abuse it to say, see, you ought to be rich. God wants you rich. No, no, no. It's not that kind of rich. It's the spiritual blessings we receive from Jesus Christ. Though we were dead in our sins, we have been made alive in him. And how did that happen? Jesus laid down his right of glory. Although he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. He took on human flesh. There's nothing more poor than that. Why? So that you, by his poverty, not speaking of his poor state as he walked the earth, but treated on that cross as if he had sinned. Our sin was placed upon him. And although he was rich in glory and holiness, God the Father poured his wrath on Christ and treated him as if we deserve. So that when we believe in Christ, God treats us as Christ deserves. What a glorious verse. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what Paul's saying. Where did he learn that from? He learned it from Christ. I'm laying down my rights for the love and benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that more people can hear, the less people might stumble. This is already offensive. I don't need to make it more offensive. Even though I have the right to do this, I gave that up for love. May we learn so much from this text, brothers and sisters. May we know how to love one another in these areas of Christian liberty and think of others more highly than ourselves as the Lord Jesus did for us. And let's think about this verse and what he did for us now as we remember him in communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Thank you, God, that for our sake, he came. He laid down. He laid down himself. He humbled himself, even to the point of death, to save us, to bear our wrath, to bear our sin. This is where Paul gets his example from. We all are born with these lives that have this propensity to selfishness and to greed and rights, and I deserve this. But yet in the life of the Lord Jesus, he gave it up for us. He didn't deserve any of that. He didn't deserve what we have incurred upon ourselves. But yet in love, he gave. May we follow his example not claim our rights 
as a way to puff ourselves up, but to mimic our Savior and how we treat one another for your glory. Help us now as we remember you and this ordinance, as we confess our sin to you, as we seek repentance in our hearts. We remember that your body was broken, that you are our substitute, that you absorbed all of our wrath, divine, holy wrath of God the Father. And have now declared us righteous when we have faith in you in your finished work, alone. Not our works, not our membership in a church, not our family ties or culture, not in a prayer we may have said, but faith in you. We've been declared righteous even though we were the enemies of God. Oh, would you encourage your people this morning as we feast spiritually on the presence of Christ encourage us enable us to confess and repent sin freely to not conceal it and to run to Christ as our great example of one who has laid down his life for us help us oh God Save the sinner by faith and repentance in this gospel. Sanctify the saint. In Jesus' name, amen.